Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons? Picture yourself on an old wooden pew in Charles Spurgeon's London Church or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival, or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Welcome back, Kelly. It's good to see you. Thank you, Tim. Good to see you as well. It's spring season's coming in, and I, it can't come faster. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, so today's History's Greatest Sermon is actually going to be Billy Sunday. And the first episode of History's Greatest Sermon was from Billy Sunday. And so I'm not going to get too much into the details of his biography. If you're listening and you want to hear that, go download the app, uh, the Unshackled app. It has all of the History's Greatest Sermons from uh, archived past episodes. Go listen to them. They're all great, of course. The greatest, <laughs> some say. Um, I will touch on the fact that, so Billy Sunday, he was a professional baseball player from 1883 to 1891, I think for the Chicago White Sox, right? Yeah, I believe so. Right here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he left that professional career, high paying career, yeah. after he heard a street preacher from Pacific Garden Mission, yes. right? And just, I was reminding myself of his story and I thought, what is the today's equivalent mm. of the street preacher. Now, I know there are still some. A good friend of mine uh, does that ministry. A number of people do that. They're great people. But what else is today's equivalent of like a street preacher? A uh, blogger. Blogger. Yeah. Social media. Yep. YouTube. Any yep. of these streaming services. Yes. Anyone who, who, who pulls out their phone, hits the record, and starts just talking to people or, or allowing themselves to be vulnerable. Yeah. Just out in public. That is the public square today, right? Yeah, it is. Do you think that that kind of conversion, you know, some professional person uh, like Billy Sunday is on the street and he hears this preacher just pouring his heart out and he's like, I got to find out what more this is about. Do you think that's happening today? I think it is happening because your friend will say, this really impacted me. Here, give this a listen. Mm. And we do. Mm. And Rather than being standing with them, we're in relationship with them, and somebody will pass a name or a link yeah. or something along. They'll, they'll share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we share that way. And people will, I many friends listen on their drive to work because so many of us have to drive some many sure, minutes. Sure, sure, sure. And so filling that with a good thing so that your day is set. Yeah. So we're getting listening in brand new ways. But on the flip side, it's very easy to just click away. Yeah. You know what? Well, it's easy to walk away too when you're on the street and some guy's got a placard and he's just shouting, the end is near. Yeah. Well, you just kind of walk right past him. Yeah. The The follow-up to that was, I'm a, I'm not a big fan of social media. It's kind of gone down the drain, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Not very much. Uh, so. A lot of these companies are not the greatest companies. A lot of the messages out there are just, they're, they're obscene or it's just garbage. It's nothing that I would want in my own house. Uh, but so are the streets of our cities. Yes. And yet those ministers and preachers of the word would stand there on the street yes. and proclaim the gospel anyway. In the midst. In the of... midst of all that. So there's still value. There's got to be still value there. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to God for those people mm -hmm. who, who put the message out there, even in today's 
equivalent of the town square, the street preacher. Yeah. And I, I just, I pray God uses that continually to draw more people to him. And when I love what Sunday is about to talk to us about, because mm-hmm. there's power in, there is power in. And in our today's equivalent, when God is involved, power goes out. Yeah, yeah. Well, today's sermon is called Gethsemane. And it's interesting to see what he means by that. So let's listen in to Billy Sunday. Make me worthy by cleansing me and filling me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And being more in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, Luke 22:24. Infidels have seized upon certain verses of Scripture and have given as reasons for their unbelief that the statement therein contained did not agree with their opinion. One of these verses is the one that I have just read. And being in great agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. For, says the infidel, it is a physical impossibility for men to sweat blood. Well, this is a lot of nonsense. Because you have two good eyes and have always known good sight, should you say there are no blind? They have never heard of such a thing happening, they say. All right. But because you say that man has never sweat blood, don't say that God didn't. When I was a boy, I used to hear men say that the Bible couldn't be true, for it was absolutely impossible for a man to fast for 40 days and live. They thought that settled it. Well, then along came Dr. Tanner, and he fasted for 40 days. That was the first time. He fasted again for 46 days, and he fasted a third time for 62 days. And after that, we didn't hear any more about a fast of 40 days being impossible. The infidels quit quoting Tom Paine's Age of Reason on that point. When a man gets chesty and puts his old theories up against God, then God always brings the man forward to show that he is an old marplot and an old liar. Dr. Withrow, a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Chicago, he went there from Boston, says he knew of a man who had a wayward son. He hadn't heard from that boy for nine years. Then one day, they sent him word that his son was in prison. He had committed a murder, and he had been tried and convicted and was about to be executed. He had refused to tell anything about his family until he was face to face with death. Then he told them, and they wrote to the father, to ask him what should be done with the body. Dr. Withrow said that in his agony, that father sweat drops of blood. If an earthly father sweat drops of blood for one son who was just gone wrong, is it strange that Jesus should sweat drops of blood for all men when they were in danger of hell? When Jesus sweat drops of blood there in the garden, it was a new sight for the angels. They had seen their brother angels rebel against God, and they had seen the conflict which followed. And they had seen these rebel angels hurled over the battlements of heaven. They had seen Sennacherib come up with his men. And they had seen 180,000 Assyrians laid low by the sword when the angel of God smote them in the night. They had seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cast into a fiery furnace for refusing to bow themselves down to idols, and had seen them come out from it unharmed. They had seen the brave Daniel hurled into the lion's den for refusing to bow the knee to anyone save Jehovah. And they had seen him come out from the den of wild beasts alive. But never before 
had the angels beheld such a sight as when they looked down upon the garden of Gethsemane and saw the Son of God kneeling there, sweating drops of blood as he agonized over man. In this text, there are many lessons valuable to us, and especially valuable just at this stage of the campaign. The first lesson is that the divine cup is bitter. It is bitter to fallen angels and fallen man, and it was bitter to the fallen Christ. Think of the sight. Think of Jesus staining his garments with the bloody sweat, not because of any sin or fault of his own, for he was without sin, but because of his anguish over man. God hates sin, and so do I. So will every man on this earth who lays any claim to decency. If you don't hate sin, you will if you ever change your ways and try to be decent. He didn't sweat those drops of blood because of any physical suffering. It wasn't because of any fear of death. For if Jesus had been afraid to die, he would have been a coward. And he wasn't a coward, although he was willing to die if God said to. I don't want to die. I want to stay here as long as I can. (laughs) Ha! And so did Jesus, but he wasn't afraid to die. No, no, it was because of his grief for man. A great martyr said as he stood in the midst of the flames that were devouring him, Though you see the flesh fall from my bones, I absolutely feel no pain. If you ever had any doubt about a literal hell, a fiery hell where the wicked must remain forever, it would all vanish. If you could see Jesus Christ in Gethsemane agonizing because men would not accept him and were going to hell. Hell must be an awful place. The fact that God went to the trouble to send Jesus Christ to this earth and to work out his great plan of redemption proves that it must be an awful place. I think this should give us a new vision. Yes, it was a bitter cup for Jesus. Oh, and don't you be careless professors of Christianity for another minute. Don't you start to make a cold, formal prayer when you come to address Almighty God. Don't you dare to regard this campaign in a critical and carping way. Oh, hell must be an awful place when Jesus was in such agony to think that men were going there. You're a big fool to go to hell, but it will be your own fault if you do. God doesn't want you to go there, but he won't stop you. He has sacrificed his son to keep you out of hell, and what more could he do? I am doing all I can to keep you out of hell. I have stood here and preached to you, and I've done all that I could, and if you won't be saved, all right, go to hell. When Jesus was being led out to be sacrificed, women followed him and wept, and he turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For he said, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Jesus meant that they shouldn't weep for him, but for those who were about to crucify him. He meant that there were more reasons to weep for them than to weep for him. So don't weep for others' troubles. Weep for your own soul. Oh, and don't worry about my vocabulary, sister. Get on your knees and pray for your salvation. Don't worry about my eccentricities. You'd better look after your own faults. And we learn still another lesson. The power of prayer. Every man and every woman that God has used to halt this sin-cursed world and set it going Godward has been a Christian of prayer. 
Martin Luther arose from his bed and prayed at night. And when the break of day came, he called his wife and said to her, It has come. History records that on that very day, King Charles granted religious toleration, a thing for which Luther had prayed. John Knox, whom his queen feared more than any other man, was in such agony of prayer that he ran out into the street and fell on his face and cried, Oh God, give me Scotland or I'll die. And God gave him Scotland. And not only that, he threw England in for good measure. When Jonathan Edwards was about to preach his great sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, he prayed for days. And when he stood before his congregation and preached it, men caught at the seat in their terror, and some fell to the floor. And people sighed out in their fear, Mr. Edwards, tell us how we can be saved. I believe that if you will pray as you ought to pray, you will have more people at the altar in the next week than you have had in all the weeks that are past. You have never had the people of this community in such a frame of mind as they are now, and you may never have things as they now are again. Now is the time to save souls. If you can't save them now, God pity you, for you never will. An old infidel, a blacksmith, said that he could refute any argument that a Christian could make. There was an old deacon there, he was a Baptist, and he'd heard of it. He told his wife, and they got down on their knees and prayed until three o'clock in the morning. That morning, the old deacon hitched up and drove over to see the man. He went into the blacksmith shop, and the infidel was standing there, and the deacon stood before him, and he said, My wife and I prayed for you until three o'clock this morning. Then his eyes filled with tears, and he sobbed and turned away. He couldn't think of one of the arguments he had prepared. He drove back home, and when he got there, he said to his wife, I've made an old fool of myself. It was all for nothing. When I saw him, I just told him that we had been praying for him. Then I broke down and couldn't think of another thing and came home. In the meantime, the infidel went into his own house and said to his wife, I heard a new argument this morning. She said, what was that? Why, he said, the old deacon drove in to see me this morning and told me that he and his wife had prayed for me until three o'clock in the morning. Then he sobbed and went away. And the old infidel said, I'd like to talk to him. So they drove over, and he told the deacon why he had come. And it was not long before the deacon had him on his knees, and he was saved. A mother had some daughters, and they were frivolous and coquettish girls. She couldn't get them to give up their pleasures and live for God. She prayed for them, and finally one day she said to them, I'm ashamed of you. I'm almost sorry that I bore you and held you on my knees. You care more for others than you do for your God or your mother. Others ask you to go with them, and you go. I ask you to go with me, and you won't go. I'm going into my closet, and I am going to pray for you. I don't know that I shall ever come out alive. Well, she went in and prayed. The hours went by, and still she prayed. Well, finally, there was a knock at the door, and one of her daughters stood there. She was weeping, and she said, Mother, I want to be saved. I've come to pray with you. So the two of them prayed, and hours went by, and presently another daughter came and joined them there. And before night came, all those girls had found Jesus. (laughs) Then we learn a lesson of the spirit of deep concern over soul. The spirit of concern we find in the Bible puts to shame many who are here in Omaha. Some of you have been coming to this tabernacle ever since the meetings were begun, but you have simply sat here. 
You haven't put forth a hand to bring anyone to Christ. If you are one of these, you are absolutely worthless so far as God is concerned. You are of no use to him, and he looks on you as an unprofitable servant. How can you sit by while souls are going to hell? What are you going to say to God about it after a while? Go and see an unsaved person die and read the obituary, not once but twice, and realize that he died unsaved, and then see what you think of it. Someone may say, how do I know how God feels about it? How do I know whether he is really concerned over sinners? I know it. I know it. It would be a sin of presumption if I did not. If God cared as little for the souls of men as some of you care, not a soul ever would have been saved. It is not possible for the human mind to have a greater conception of God than is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. For a man to say he loves God and then turns his back on Jesus Christ is an insult to the Almighty. You will find in him just what your heart has been looking for, and you'll find it nowhere else. I can see Jesus in the garden looking down on Jerusalem and saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stoned them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. It is a matter of history that from that day Jesus turned away from the Jews. He never appealed to them again, but turned to the Gentiles. But God's got a plan for the Jews. So Jesus is God made manifest in the flesh. Did you ever weep over the sins of the people? Did you ever weep over the evil of the multitude? If you never did, then there's something wrong with your religion. If God Almighty had no more concern about the salvation of Omaha than some of you, Omaha would have been in hell long ago. If God were no more anxious about Omaha than some of the preachers I could name, this city would have been damned long ago. I have been here long enough to see that. Salvation all comes through Jesus. You've got to see Jesus in order to see God, and you've got to see God in order to enter heaven. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. The hope of America is in Christ, not in free trade. It's not in the banking system. It's not in tariff reform or conservation of natural resources or the ship problem or universities. We need a great tidal wave of religion. One time, I found a little boy in the street. After that boy had been restored to his mother, I found that the mother had been frantic for his return. She could not do enough to show her appreciation. Well, it opened my eyes, and I said, God, I know how you feel about all this unsaved world, for I know how that mother felt over that little lost boy. Another lesson we find is that much concern moves the unsaved for God. Much concern is aroused by prayer. Now, Dr. Chapman told me that when he was a young minister and was a pastor of a little Dutch Presbyterian church in New York State, he started what he called a revival. He told me that he had often apologized to God since then for calling it that. He would preach, and then he would say, if anyone would like to join the church, let them step in and meet the session. <laughs> if that isn't as cold-blooded a proposition as you could find, I'll give it up. Nobody stepped in to meet the session. 
They didn't believe in excitement in the church. No, sir. If anybody wanted to join, he could step in and meet the session. Dr. Chapman became concerned for one young man. He felt that he ought to speak for him, but he feared that he might show more zeal than knowledge. He felt the man might be offended if he went to him in that way. He had the wrong idea. If anyone is offended because you try to do right, let them go. If anyone is offended because you ask them to be a Christian, let them go to hell. You've done your duty. He thought it over and made up his mind to speak that very night. The young man did not come that night, so on the next day, Dr. Chapman drove out in a cutter to see him. He met the man and said, I want you to be a Christian. Oh, the man was angry. He said, you blankety-blank preacher, I don't want you to come to me about that. But Dr. Chapman turned and left him and drove away. He caught cold while driving out there, and it stayed with him that winter. And soon after, he left the place and took up evangelistic work. One night, ten years after, he was holding a meeting at Saratoga when he saw a man coming down the aisle. Do you know me? the man asked. Dr. Chapman didn't know him. Why, the man said, I'm Benedict from Schuylerville. I'm the man who cursed you when you drove out to my home and asked me to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian now. Well, what has changed you? Dr. Chapman asked. I'll tell you, said the man. I never heard a sermon that touched me, nor a song. It was your tears, the tears that were in your eyes as I cursed you and you turned away. I've never been able to forget them. I've never had a day's peace since that moment. Ah, oh, if you knew the power of tears for the sinner. If you only felt enough concern to weep over those who were in danger of being lost. The sight of such tears would win many souls for Christ. One morning when I was over in Iowa, a young woman came to my door and knocked and said that a man wanted to see me. I found that he was a church member, a ruling elder. He told me that he had not been living right. How can I get right? He asked. I told him that his confession must be as public as his sin had been great. I told him that he would have to stand up and tell the people that he hadn't been living right and promise that with God's help, he would do better. He said, oh, I can't do that. All right, I said, but if you aren't willing to do what you must do to get right, what did you come to me for? He finally said he would do it, and he did. And then he asked me to pray for him, and I did. Then he asked me to pray for his son, Ernest, and I prayed for him at intervals that day. The boy was at uh, Shenandoah that was in western Iowa going to school. He didn't go with his class that day. Late that night, there was a knock at the door, and when they opened it, Ernest was there. He had walked 16 or 17 miles to get home, and he was almost frozen. What's wrong? Father asked. Oh, Father, I'm an awful sinner, said the boy. They called his mother, and they got him warm. <laughs> Today, he is preaching the gospel to the heathen. God shot the arrow of conviction over 15 miles that day in answer to our prayers. If the church people get right, the whole world will get right. The world is challenging the church instead of the church challenging the world. If it was as easy to get the church on its knees as it is to get the unsaved world into the kingdom, we wouldn't have any trouble about religion. And God can't save you unless you're willing. He won't coerce you to it. 
I often think of what Bob Ingersoll might have been if he had only been turned into Christianity. What a power of God that man could have been. I often think of what a power Voltaire could have been for God, that brilliant man over whose writings many have stumbled to hell. Carey translated the Bible into 24 languages and dialects. Finney brought over a million into the kingdom of God. Moody brought hundreds of thousands to Christ. I have never seen a minister who preached doctrines and creeds and evolution and all such things who had any real concern for the souls of his people. Jesus Christ is in a hurry to save this world, and there never was an age when people were so hungry for the truth as they are today. The angels don't care anything about a railroad in Alaska. What do the angels care about political principles? What do they care about a 40-story skyscraper or reclaiming the deserts of the West? What do they care about pictures, art, or science? The only thing they're interested in is the salvation of man. If you want to make the bells of heaven ring, get down on your knees. Tell a sinner about Jesus Christ if you want to hear the heavenly bells. Nothing will swing open the prison doors and bring men out of sin like prayer. I never see a man or a woman or boy or girl, but I do not think that God has a plan for them and wonder what it is. He has a plan for each of us. He will use each of us to his glory if we will only let him. We can defeat his plan if we want to. Finally, we find that God honors this spirit of deep concern for the unsaved, this Concern comes from a clear realization of man's relation. I never knew a higher critical preacher to save them from hell. Such preaching is not of God and he will not bless it. It is of the devil. If you haven't got in your heart an agonized concern for the unsaved, go right down there in front and fall in the sawdust and ask God to forgive you. Nothing makes such joy in heaven as the salvation of a soul. The angels don't care a rap about your wealth. They don't care about your, your, your social position. They don't care about your culture. It's the salvation of sinners the angels care about. That was Billy Sunday, portrayed by Timothy Gregory. You know, halfway through, he says... If you haven't put forth a hand to bring anyone to Christ, you are absolutely worthless as far as God is concerned. Yeah, I remember that. Tim? <laughs> <laughs> wow, is that hyperbole, you think? Uh, it doesn't square if you take it literally. Yeah. So I, I think he it, it it probably comes from, yeah, of course he's being hyperbolic. I don't to, think yeah. God, scripturally God doesn't view you as worthless. Ever. Um, I think a little bit of that might come from his baseball background. How many times it had his coaches, especially in Chicago, just like, just, they just rail you, yeah, right, even right. though you probably That's know. That's worthless. Yeah, exactly. And we say that. Yeah, we do. We so do, we have we to go along that route. Yeah. But man, I love the, the path, passion with which he's saying it is true. There, there is something about our faith and we've talked about this before, but there's something about our faith that is basically a dead faith if we're not doing what God has called us to do. We can be really, really selfish. Mm. And we are as a culture. We yeah. are so self-centered. And that is a worthlessness in that you have something 
that you were keeping to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Something everybody needs. Yes. And yet we keep it to ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said he says something along the lines of we shouldn't be worried about offending people by asking them to come to Christ. Mm-hmm. And it, it it paralleled also um I think it was after he he talks about that. Don't worry about offending people because if you present the gospel and they reject it, you've done your part. You've done your part. That's on them. There's yes. nothing to be offended by. There's nothing to well don't worry about offending them. How they receive the gospel is between them and God. And that's that kind of takes a little bit of the weight off. So our worth is found in Christ. Yes. And therefore, me sharing and you not accepting has nothing to do with my worth. Mm. That has right. to be the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another quote, he says, there was never an age when people were so hungry for the truth as they are today. What's funny is I feel like in our culture currently- We're back. Well, yes, but it's almost like they're not interested in the truth. Mm-hmm. We know, at least as believers and followers of Christ and believers in his word, we know they want the truth. Yeah. But it's so easy for people to say like, ah, truth, truth, what's truth, you know, whatever. I want my truth because I want it like I want it. But they still need the truth. Yes. What is it people think they need and how is the church addressing it? So there's the offense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't want to offend people, but I I don't know. Jesus offended a lot of people. I think Uh he was a good role model. (laughs) Uh, he tosses something in right at the end. He says, a critical preacher won't save people. Oh. I think he, w- I think he was implying that idea of like, if you just wag your finger and criticize people yeah. all the time, that's not going to draw anyone no, to Christ. Nobody likes being beat over the head and shoulders. No. Hey, yeah. if you have any questions or thoughts on today's sermons, please email us at podcast at unshackled.com. Again, podcast at unshackled.com. We'd love to hear from you. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an Unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more Unshackled content, you can download our app, get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.